Um, If you want to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, we are looking, or I'm looking, whenever I preach here, I'm looking um, at the seven words, seven letters, seven messages that the risen Christ has for the church, has for seven churches in different parts of what's modern day Turkey. And uh, and we are hearing Christ from beyond the grave, so to speak. After his ascension, he is risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are hearing what he has to say to seven communities, seven churches. Today we are looking at Sardis. And it is, the, I think, the, the worst thing that Jesus has to say to the churches. This is the worst church. We are going to read what is, I think, a wake-up call to rouse a church that is in a kind of spiritual coma. They started well, presumably. They heard the gospel, and yet they have detached themselves from Christ. They are dead. They have forgotten what they heard. They're probably not preaching the gospel at all. There are only a few genuine believers in this community The rest are just showing up and going through the motions, presumably. And I want you to hear as we read these verses the urgency in Christ's voice, the urgency in what he has to say in calling these people back to himself. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. So language really means the Holy Spirit and the seven stars, the seven churches. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, a people who have not, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed in, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life." I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are strong words. And I want to start by kind of painting you a picture of of this church. You can imagine for a moment... Each one of these churches, you can go back and look at the, previous, uh, the rest of the chapter, it speaks of, of the church in Ephesus. They are a kind of hard-working church that is kind of gritting their teeth, but maybe has lost something of its love. And then you speak, last time I looked at this uh, set, we looked at Philadelphia, a church that was weak, that was struggling. You kind of imagine a, a person who's just really nearly at the end of themselves. And Jesus said, no, it's okay that you're weak, basically because I am strong. If this church was a, was a person, I think we would see a dying woman here. You know from Ephesians chapter 5, if you've, if you've got familiarity with the Bible, that uh, the Bible describes the relationship between Christ and the church as, the, as a kind of, one picture it gives for that is the, the way a husband perfectly loves his wife. 
Imagine for a moment the perfect husband who is utterly committed to his bride. In fact, he talks about how Christ loves loves his church with that sense of deep commitment and love such that he was willing to lay down his life for her. Equally then, the church is called to love, to have a similar kind of loyalty and affection and single-mindedness, single-minded affection for Christ alone. And that is the picture we have of what the relationship between Christ and the church should look like. But this is the very opposite of that. Imagine for a moment this church as a woman who is, who's really detached herself from her lover that is Christ, who's left her husband, who is destroying herself. <coughs> A drug-addled woman who's given herself over to prostitution. It describes soiled garments. It's a picture of of, um, betrayal, of of seeking other lovers. She barely remembers him. She's in a kind of sleepy coma. She doesn't even realize the, the danger that she's in. She's such as she kind of almost forgotten her lover, forgotten Christ completely, and she doesn't realize the danger. No idea how bad things have got, that she is actually on the edge of death. So imagine for a moment this kind of dying woman, and Christ is is leaning over her, saying, wake up! Wake up! Remember where you've come from! Remember the love that we had at first! Come back to me. Turn around. Use the language of repent. It means to turn around. Turn back to me. You have detached from me. You've forgotten me. You've rejected me. Come back to me and receive life. If not, total destruction awaits you. That is the the heaviness of what Christ has to say to this community. And, And we have to ask ourselves when we look at this passage, who is Christ speaking to? Who is Christ speaking to? I think... Really, what he's describing here is the nominal church. The nominal church. Think about the language he uses here. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. But literally, uh, the word reputation is is a, a name. He's saying, you have the name of being alive, but you are dead. You carry the name of Christ. You you purport to uh, be Christians but you have none of my life in you. It speaks of thousands, perhaps millions of churches all around the world where actually there is no genuine affection for Christ. There's no genuine relationship with Christ. There's there's a veneer of religiosity perhaps, but there's no genuine preaching of the gospel. There's no genuine proclamation of the person of Christ. People are going there out of ritual, perhaps Perhaps because they like the community there. Or perhaps because it's in one of those cultures, and this was certainly true in in Britain in the last century, one of those cultures where it conferred some kind of social value to go to church. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, the culture you're coming from, uh, where to to go to church, you, you appear respectable. You appear, in some sense, some benefit to going to church, whether it be social or reputational, or even you kind of, maybe you come here once a month and you, you come here because you think, oh, maybe there's some kind of spiritual interest. There's some, there's some kind of, um, I like to hear some of the messages It's a tragedy, actually. It speaks of the great offense of what it is to own the name of Christ, but actually to have nothing to do with him in your heart. See Christ's lament for his church here. 
his grief at thousands of churches up and down all around the world, perhaps some in the UK, where actually there's no life there. There's no genuine affection for Christ there. He's saying, you're dead. Come back to life. And if you're not a Christian, I, first of all, I want to say to you is, don't confuse the nominal church for the real thing. If, you're, if, you're, if you've grown up in Britain and you, you know, kind of hear of a, uh, a kind of imagine for a moment the vision of church, a kind of sleepy village church with a, a, few, a few people coming together out of tradition or maybe they kind of say some words together and maybe there's a kind of uplifting ideas there, you might think that's Christianity. And what this says is, no, that's completely not the real Christian faith. The real Christian faith is, it describes a people who have let Christ take over their lives. Let Christ take over their hearts to, to come and dwell in them and to t- capture every part of them. And so don't, when you look at the church, confuse the normal church for the real thing. But what about us? It's easy to sit here and to, uh, to kind of feel like this message is for other people. If you're a Christian, you go, well, yeah, I, this is for people who don't reckon, who are Christians, but they don't actually have, uh, sorry, people who, who have a label of Christian, but they're not actually Christians to sit in a kind of self-satisfied way and say, this is not about us. Actually, unfortunately, that's exactly the problem this community has. Because what you have to realize about Sardis is their downfall is their pride. And what you have to know is really actually about the community itself in Sardis. Sardis was a, um, a, a city of great wealth once upon a time. It was a place of great uh, fortune and prestige and, and one of part of its kind of success was its geographical location the Acropolis the center of the town was at the top of a mountain and the cliffs if you go you can go on YouTube and look at them they, the cliffs were sheer basically sheer cliff face and such that they were so um, powerful su- such was their position that they thought we are impregnable in fact they even had like a, a Greek pre-Christian guy come along and basically say, no one can conquer you. They, were, they felt themselves to be unconquerable. And of course, what happens? They were, they, they were asleep on the job twice. 567 BC and in the third century, they thought they were impregnable. They were sleeping and their enemies come and find a way up this kind of cliff face and take over. They are a community that was destroyed twice because of their pride and their sense of, we don't need to defend ourselves, basically. Their sense of self-satisfaction. And the strong implication when you read this letter from Christ to the church in Sardis is they are guilty of the same thing. That they adopted a kind of posture of self-satisfaction, of of pride, of kind of saying, we don't really, we're okay. And, And as a result, then apathy crept in and they slowly detached themselves from Christ. The very last thing you should do as you hear this warning from Christ is somehow think this describes other people. If you're a Christian, you've got to hear that we might be guilty of the same things in micro that the people of Sardis are guilty of in macro. We want to read them as something of a a cautionary tale, a warning from history saying, don't let this happen to you. Don't allow yourself to sleepily just kind of drift through life with lethargy and a sense of pride saying, I'm okay spiritually, and then just to slowly drift from Christ and ultimately to detach yourself from him. And so this passage, I think, raises three big questions that we need to consider, almost diagnostic questions. First one is, are you dead or are you sleeping? The second one is, have you forgotten the magnitude of the gospel? And the third one is, have you detached yourself from Christ? 
And as you hear these, I want you to ask, take this moment to reflect on yourself and say, am I guilty? Am I in danger of any of the worst practices that these people of Sardis took, went through um, that might put me in spiritual danger? So first of all, are you dead or sleeping? Wake up. The first step towards Christ resuscitating this woman in a kind of sleeping coma is to diagnose the problem. You will have heard Christ described as the great physician. The beginning of any encounter with a doctor begins with the right diagnosis. You have to allow Christ to diagnose the nature of your heart. All spiritual change, all growth in the Christian life begins with the right diagnosis. You see this again and again in these letters to the churches. Christ begins by telling them, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. In chapter 2, I know where you dwell. I, I know your works, your love and your faith to the church in Thyatira. Each time he begins by saying, I know everything about your context. At the beginning of this letter he said, I am the one who holds the stars in my hands. It's a sense of, I am the one who knows the churches. I weigh them. I, I can see you. See, nothing you... Nothing that is going on in your heart can escape the notice of Christ. You must allow him to diagnose the true nature of your heart. You cannot hide anything from him. And the first thing for some of you that you would need to hear is some of you are precisely the people that this is talking about. Some of you think that you're Christians, but you're not. Some of you have a, own the label of Christianity, but actually it's just a veneer of religiosity. Christ has not taken hold of your life. In chapter in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul describes some who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. And what they mean is they lack the power of God at work in their lives. They appear godly. And don't you remember, he speaks to the Pharisees in the Gospels and he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look beautiful. And on the inside, there's a stench of death. The veneer of religiosity. Think about the Pharisees. They, they prayed publicly. They knew all the right things to say. They could articulate the faith. And yet, they did not have spiritual life. They did not have a genuine relationship with the living God. God had not taken hold of their hearts. And I want to warn some of you that just having a kind of label of Christianity is not enough. Christ wants every part of your life. And actually, by the way, this is the worst place to be, is to think, to think that you're a Christian. Maybe you come here once a month and you know, you've got some vague, and you were grazed in the faith and, and you know, it was kind of part of your community growing up. And so you think you're a Christian and, and you might even comfort yourselves with some of the, the promises of the, the truth of Scripture and yet you do not have Christ. You do not have the life of Christ at work in your life. So how would we know this? What is the question? I think the question that Christ would ask us, the question that, that helps us to know the answer to that question is, is there a sincere desire to obey Christ? Is there a willing submission to Christ in your life? And the reason I say that is because Jesus speaks in the Gospels of those who who have bad fruit coming out of their lives. They, they, they do not have the, um, the works that reflect a heart for Christ in their life. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So they look good on the outside, 
but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. How will you know whether they're true or not? By the fruits of their lives. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Implication, no. Or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad, bad, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Christ would say, is there, is there a, a work? Can you see the work of Christ in your lives? Can you see the work of Christ in your life? Can you see a pattern of seeking to follow him? Can you see a pattern of, of Christ uh, changing you? Can you see a desire for Christ in your heart? Can you see a longing for him, uh, an affection for him, a loyalty to him, a loyalty that says he is the ultimate um, source of affection, truth, peace, and love in your life? He is the most precious thing to you. Or do you go to church out of habit to please your parents or because you want some kind of spiritual insight or you like the community? It's not enough. Christ wants every part of you. And it's right that we invite a moment of self-reflection. Are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian? Some of you who uh, you know, need to hear that, hear that question and reflect on it. So the first thing is those who, we see that as one, one people under, under, under the microscope as Christ speaks here. But I also want you to hear the gravity of deadness. You see, this language that Christ gives them, he says, you are dead. And we are, as, if you've been around the church for a while, you hear it and you think it just kind of rolls off the tongue and it means very little to you. Hear what he means, you're spiritually dead. If you're not a Christian here, he is saying you are dead spiritually. What's he describing here? He's saying you are disconnected from the source of all life in the universe. You see, we've been raised in an individualistic age where we are independent creatures seeking to make a name for ourselves and establish uh, ourselves in the world. But the Bible says, no, you're a dependent creature. You were made for a relationship with God. And, it's, and, and the picture that, one picture that Jesus gives that, that illustrates this is the vine and the branches. And he says, you are like a branch and God is like the vine. The vine, the bigger, the kind of main plant, so to speak. And he's saying, you only flourish in life when you as the branch are connected with the vine. But God is the source of all life and flourishing and he's saying, actually, if you disconnect yourself from him, you will spiritually wither and die. And that is the great problem of humanity. If you're not a Christian here, what you want to hear is that Christ is saying, the biggest problem of your life is that you have ruptured yourself from the life that is in Christ. We have snapped ourselves off from the vine and we're lying on the floor like a dead twig. Or like a, a laptop where you've ripped out the charging cable and it's slowly decreasing in power and it's on lower, low power mode and it's kind of on the way out and one day it's going to be destroyed. And unless you connect it back to the power, it's completely worthless. It's right that we hear in this deadness a warning of ultimate eternal death or judgment or separation from God or the Bible calls hell. So actually this deadness, this uh, physical death that we will all experience is a window into the reality of a worse death which is eternal separation from the living God who is the source of all life and goodness and flourishing for humanity. It's a warning. We see the marks of death, this spiritual death in our culture all around us. The hopelessness, the despair, the anger, the frustration, 
the self-sabotage, the, the uh, self-destructive tendencies where we destroy ourselves and destroy others. The worst thing about it is our culture is dead. They, experience, they hear this verdict on, on those who are without Christ and they don't even realize it. What a tragedy. And that actually brings me on to the next problem in, in, I think in, in, under the microscope of what Christ is saying here is we as a church are sleeping you see, it speaks of a, a death and it also speaks of a sleepiness. When Christ says, wake up, the worst thing about these people is they don't realize their condition. The, the language of sleep and awake, it reminds me of, of a, an instruction that Jesus gives to uh, his disciples just before he goes back to the cross and ultimately to be with the Father. And he says, essentially gives them instruction, stay awake. So he says, concerning that day or that hour when he was returning, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Christ gives an instruction to his people as he leaves them to stay awake. And what he's speaking of is a, a sense of anticipating Christ's return to be watchful that of the times we're in and that one day Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. To stay awake is to live with one eye on that future reality. You even hear it in the, in the, in the, in the letter or the word that Jesus has for this church here when he says those who conquer will be clothed in white garments and will never blot his name out of the book of life. He's speaking of that future reality. He's reminding them of the future that awaits them. And the problem is that so much of the church today is like a sleeping army. We live without any eye on the future, any eye on Christ's return. We sleep, we allow almost like a kind of satanic lullaby just to kind of whisper in our ears and to send us off to sleep and to slowly ignore the great spiritual reality that Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead that the world around us is, is dead without Christ, disconnected from him, and this is the great problem of humanity. And we have fallen asleep on the job. We've fallen asleep. We're ignoring that great reality. I remember when I was just new, a new Christian, and my, I'd been a Christian for about a year, and I'd, um, at the end, my friends, my housemates were having a house party, and I was chatting to the president of the Jewish Society. I became a Christian while I was at uni, and, um, and I was telling him about my faith in Christ, and, um, and he said to me, basically, I don't think you Christians believe this. And I said, what do you mean? And I was talking about judgment and everything else. Like that. He, said, he said, I don't think you Christians believe this, because where are the people standing outside my college saying, guys, there's an eternal judgment awaiting you? Essentially, his point was, if you really believe this, you'd be standing outside my uni telling me about this. The fact that you don't, the fact that you, are, that you could you know, be friends with me for three years or you know, whatever, the, and not mention it, says, actually, you don't really believe it. I thought it was a sobering reminder of that moment we show whether we believe this or not by whether we take this seriously, by whether we pray for our friends, whether we want to engage our friends with, the, with this gospel. It's a tragedy, brothers and sisters, that we need to wake up. The world is dying. 
Master's coming back. There is a spiritual battle for souls, brothers and sisters. Wake up. So this is a call to wake up. If you, are, if you recognize the, the diagnosis that Christ is giving you, some of you recognize that you are spiritually dead, that you have, do not have the life of Christ, you have no affection for him, no desire for him, no relationship with him, you are dead, wake up, come to the king who offers life. And to those who are sleeping, wake up, see the spiritual reality around us. Second question that Christ would ask us, have you forgotten the magnitude of the gospel? Remember what you heard. You see, Christ's first answer to the person, this, this dying church, is recognize where you are. What's the next thing he says? Remember what you received and heard. Remember then what you received and heard. Christ called them to remember that gospel that was spoken to them when they first believed. They'd forgotten the gospel. My question is, are we in danger of doing the same thing? Now, why do I say that I'm convinced he's talking about the gospel here? The Bible always, when it uses the language in the New Testament of having heard something, it's describing often those who have heard the gospel and turned to Christ. So in Romans chapter 12, is it Romans chapter 10? Um, Yeah, Romans chapter 10, he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard. How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. When he uses the language of received and heard, he's speaking about that central truth of the Christian faith, the gospel, the news, the declaration that Christ has died for all, that he suffered death on a cross so that all who believe in him would have eternal life, that he was resurrected, he triumphed over the grave, and that he was ascended to the Father, that Christ is Lord. The gospel is the announcement of salvation for all who believe in him and the announcement of Christ's lordship, a declaration that he is the king and a command to come and worship him (coughs) and obey him. And he's saying, this news, this good news that you were preached at first, you have forgotten. That is a danger for the church today. Let me get, because let me, you might think, oh, that's not really that important, and don't we all kind of know it anyway? Do you remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 when he's speaking to them? He is outraged because they have forgotten the gospel and are preaching another gospel. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting you, him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Now that there is another one, not, sorry, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying, you are a sick community. Why? Because you have taken this truth that was declared to you, and some are trying to distort it. This news of Christ's death and resurrection is being manipulated and twisted, and so you are suffering as a result. The church it becomes sick when it, st- when, it, when it distorts the gospel. Let me give you a few examples church-wise and individual-wise. First of all, church-wise. Well, one way that the, the gospel is distorted is uh, the modern liberal church that out of fear of offending a culture of a multicultural society uh, denied the exclusivity of Christ's uh, claim on your lives and that, uh, that salvation 
Uh, Life with God is only found through believing in the Son and believing in his death for your sake. And they couldn't, they couldn't preach that because they said, no, this offends those who, 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 don't, who haven't found Christ, who, who are without him. They said, we cannot preach this in a multicultural society. And in doing so, they robbed the cross of its power. They said, actually, always lead to God. And instead, they, 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 they robbed from themselves the, only pur- the, the great purpose of the church to proclaim the crucified Christ. And so they became a social welfare institution, trying to justify its purpose in the world by, by giving help to those in need. Not a bad purpose. In fact, Christ calls us to that. But they missed the central purpose of the church. That's one way you distort the gospel. Another way is, uh, historically, the Catholic church distorted the gospel by failing to preach the forgiveness of Christ and the justification by faith alone. They fail to preach the knowledge that because Christ died for you, you can be totally confident if you've put your faith in him that you are washed clean, clean. Not like a little bit, not like he's given you a bit of help, but he's completely washed you clean. But they didn't preach that. Instead, they preached uh, penance, that you need to make certain acts to to get right with God, or or indulgences. You have to pay your way past purgatory. And they invented the whole thing about purgatory. Leave that to another time. But... um, (laughs) My point is, the problem is they left thousands, millions of people in, in Western Europe in the medieval era without any sense of the assurance of salvation, without any sense of the forgiveness of Christ, quite frankly, without any sense of the joy that comes from knowing that you have been washed clean. Or the modern church, I think we see this sometimes in certain churches, certainly those that kind of lean towards prosperity gospel, where they, where they kind of preach Christ and his death for your sake, but do not preach his lordship. And the problem there is they might just be confirming people in their sins, that the gospel becomes a kind of medication that speaks to my sense of guilt, but but lacks the call to surrender everything to Christ. It's terrible. So we see this community, we see this individually. We see Christians who lose sight of the gospel, we see a few different maladies. The first is you will often become weighed down by sin. If some of you are walking around as a Christian and you'd say, I just feel constantly Uh, a sense of condemnation, constantly feel a sense of failure in the Christian life. I constantly feel like I'm not measuring up to Christ's standards. We say, yeah, there's truth in that, reality, but actually what you need is the gospel. What you need is the reminder that because Christ has died, you are forgiven. Preach it to yourself every day, every morning. His mercy is in you every morning. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I kind of want to say, I don't want to see any of you walking around just like, just feeling like just rubbish to myself. I'm just a terrible Christian. I just feel total failure and I'm just a, 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 sitting in a kind of pile of self-pity in the corner of the room. I want to say, no, Christ has cleansed you, brothers and sisters. You need not walk around with that weight, that heavy weight of condemnation. Second one, proud. Christians who lose sight of the gospel become proud. They feel superior to others and they give all sorts of different reasons, whether it be theology or spiritual practices. They find ways of asserting themselves, of judging others. But the Christian who knows the gospel says, no, I have no grounds to judge others, no grounds to feel superior to others because Christ had to die for me. My, My good works are like filthy rags compared to Christ's death. I have no grounds to feel superior. I have no grounds to feel better than other Christians. And that means that we don't need to live divided. Sometimes we, we, we divide ourselves from each other because we feel superior to each other. There's a great light, uh, truth, I think. You cannot forgive someone if you think you're better than them. So if you have a problem with forgiving someone, it might be what you actually have a problem with is pride, is that you think you're better than them. 
And in that moment, what you need to do is remember that you were so sinful that the living God had to die for you, so you have no grounds to feel superior to another. I think the other reason, the other thing that we see when someone forgets the gospel is we become lazy and comfortable, self-satisfied. Why? Because we forget that Christ was willing to die for us. The living God was willing to give his life and that becomes the pattern of the Christian life. That we are all called to walk in that posture of sacrificial, sacrificially laying down our lives on the altar. So the Christian who knows the gospel says there's no sacrifice too great for me because Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. But the biggest tragedy in the gospel, I think, is the gospel has stopped stirring our hearts. The gospel has stopped feeling meaningful, feeling magnificent. If we hear the gospel and we just go, yeah, yeah, I know that. Jesus died for my sins, blah, 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 mentally. That's such a tragedy. We've forgotten the magnitude of what happened, the the strangeness of the cross, that Christ, the living God, was willing to be hung naked on a tree. It's like a lynching almost, a public humiliation. So they wagged their heads at him. So they laughed at him and jeered at him. Have we forgotten the bizarreness, the outrage of the cross? The God of the universe, the most powerful man who ever lived, was willing to become weak to the point of death for you. See the beauty of the gospel, that Christ was willing to suffer the indignities and the lies and the accusations and the the jeering, and he uttered not a word back to his accusers. How they mocked him, the self-control that he must have had at that moment, not to lash out and say, no, you're talking rubbish. See the beauty of Christ. See this, have we forgotten the scope of the gospel? The scope of these words, Romans 1, says they are for, for all people. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is not some parochial God for a small group of people in some part of the world. This is universal offer of salvation. Have we forgotten that this is for all people? Think about the urgency that dispersed the church around the nations as they saw the risen Christ and proclaimed the good news around the Roman Empire. They felt that sense of this is public property and everyone needs to hear this. Have we forgotten the power of the gospel? Ezekiel 37, it speaks of how a prophet is speaking, the prophet Ezekiel, God is speaking to prophet Ezekiel and he basically says, your words will give life. He speaks of a, a, a valley of dry bones. And to that valley of dry bones, he says, son of man, can these bones live? So he's, he's taking him to a valley of dry bones. He says, can these bones live? And he said, I answered, oh Lord, you, oh, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's speaking of a a kind of resurrection taking place as Ezekiel prophesies, as Ezekiel speaks the good news, these words bring life. Have you forgotten that what feels kind of basic to you as a Christian are the very words that will bring life to your neighbours and your colleagues, that as they believe in Christ, some, some will see a stench of death, some will be averse to it, but some who hear it and believe it, it will bring life to them. 
Your words have a power of life or death, literally, that you can bring life from these words. Savor the gospel. Savor the sweet death of Christ. Celebrate his great victory over death and his resurrection and cherish the righteousness we've received. And the final question, have you detached yourself from Christ? Turn back to him for life. Have you detached yourself from Christ? Turn back to him for life. See, Christ's ultimate remedy for these people is repentance. He says, remember what you heard and repent. And when we hear repentance as Christians, we think he's saying, turn away from your sin. And that's true. But really, I think we have to understand repentance primarily as turning back to the person of Christ. What is the problem for these people? They've detached themselves from Christ. We must hear the beauty of what Christ is saying. Yes, there's a great stern rebuke here, but there's also an invitation to come back to him and receive life. He's saying, come back to me, woman on the edge of death. Come back and receive life. See the grace of what Christ is saying. We hear it and we think just stinging rebuke. We hear these words and we just think they feel very heavy to us. He's saying to this withered dead branch on the tree, oh, a withered dead branch on the floor, come back and reattach yourself to me and come and receive life. And just as you imagine for a moment a kind of dead twig and put it back in the plant and somehow fuse it back into the plant, as it's fused back into the plant, the lifeblood of all the, all, the resort, all the water and minerals and everything that it needs come from through the roots into the main plant and re Rebud that that twig, that twig, that dead twig receives life again. That is what Christ is offering here. He's saying to this woman who has soiled her garments, who has detached herself from him, who is in a kind of spiritual coma, who has gone after other lovers, stopped believing in him, and detached herself from him. Christ is saying, "Come back to me and receive life." It should not. We should not miss the fact that the resurrecting King, the one who was resurrected is offering resurrection to the one who is dead. That Christ, the resurrecting king, is offering resurrection to the one who is dead. Despite her great offense, Christ is calling her back to him. See the grace of Christ in this moment. He's calling you back to him. If you've become dead, if you recognize you have no affection for Christ, if you recognize that you've become sleepy, you must hear Christ's words, repent and turn back to me. Come and receive the life that you're longing for in me. Have we forgotten that the life that Christ is describing here is more than simply physical? Let me say that again. The life that Christ is describing here is more than simply physical. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 10. He said, I have come, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When Christ says, I offer life, he's not just speaking about eternal life with him. He's speaking about his life, the very shalom of God coming to us. Christ is offering the full life that you are made for. Christ is offering to come and abide with him and to receive the peace and the love and the restoration and the healing that you are longing for. Think about the pictures that Christ used, even the one I read at the beginning of the service. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the living water so that you will never thirst. These are pictures that Christ is saying, I will satisfy your deepest longings. 
And I suspect some of you who are Christians have forgotten this is what Christ means when he says, come to me and have life and life to the full. There's an invitation to come and abide with him, to come and spend time with him, to come and dwell with him. Why do we do that? Because he is the source of all life in our lives. You know, you've been to, you, maybe you went on holiday, maybe you spent time with a friend, and you said, that was a life-giving experience. Maybe I felt more alive after that. I want to say, your relationship with Christ is the most life-giving relationship you have. Why do we shrink back from him? Why do we avoid spending time with him? Well, have we forgotten that it is when we abide in Christ, when we spend time with him, when we dwell and remember his promises to us, his love to us, the love that is better than life, the peace that transcends understanding? Have we forgotten that in Christ is full and life? I, I was reminded as I was preparing this of the picture of a, a baby in the womb. That, that, that sense to which they have the umbilical cord. And uh, that umbilical cord is the source of all the nutrients, of everything they need. That is a picture of you and Christ, I want to say. And some of you need to reattach the umbilical cord. Some of you need to draw back to Christ and say, look, I've I'm a Christian. I have life in Christ. I believe in him. I've surrendered to him. But I've detached myself from him. And I need to come back to him. I need to abide in him. I need to come and remember his promises. I need to just dwell in his presence and pray and read his promises, read his word. And as I do that, I will experience life for my soul again. That is Christ's promise when he said, you will never be hungry and never be thirsty. He says, I want to refresh you and I want to feed you. And some of you have forgotten that. Some of you think of your Bible reading as just a kind of intellectual exercise. It's a relational exercise because Christ wants to feed you. Christ wants to nourish your soul. He wants to give you the peace and the, and the life that you're longing for, whether you realize it. So in conclusion, then, I want to ask you a question. Life or death? Life or death? That is the question that Christ puts before this church in Sardis. Do you want life with me, or will you have death without me? In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Jesus, um, not Jesus, sorry. Uh, this is the command that Joshua, this is the command that's given. Let me find it. See, I've set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God shall bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, and you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you that you shall surely perish. You shall not long live your land in the you shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. If you find yourself resonating with the verdict of death, hear Christ's invitation to you to receive life in him. If you recognize that you've received that life, but you are distant from that life, come to Christ again. Come and recognize his invitation to receive life.